Welcome back to the Cycle Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. I'd like to apologize, first and foremost, for any background noise <laughs> in this podcast. I'm sitting in downtown Denver, and there's a very large road nearby. But, you know, when podcasts must, we, we sit down, we make a podcast. It is Monday, October 18. We've got a lot to talk about today. The Tour de France route was announced, and the first route for the Tour de France Femme. Plus, well... How do I describe this? Uh, some not great stuff going on with the USA Grits. We're going to dive into that as much as we can. There's still a lot of things to be confirmed, and we want to be quite careful about that. But we will be talking about that today. We're also going to be talking about what people actually want in their bicycles. That's today's Nerd Nugget. And some team updates. Kubeka, Manuela Fundacion is back in the headlines. Movistar and Vini Zabu. But before we go anywhere... Let's say hello to everybody. Abby, how are you? Yeah, great. James, got a banana? I do have a banana. And also Boulder Valley School District is out of school today for Professional Development Day, which yeah. which I'm glad they're professionally developing, but I still have to work. <laughs> now your kid's home. <laughs> Correct. Dane, how are you? Yeah, doing good. And Shadi Dave. Hello, I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking, not that you did. <laughs> Shoddy, before we get into today's episode, what are we learning about Continental today? You ready? Get yourself sitting comfortably, because today, the cross stuff, innit? We are all well and truly into the cyclocross season here in the US. We've talked a lot this year about Continental's popular road options, but they have great tyres for racing in the dirt as well. Continental Speaking CX tyres are designed for racing over solid, dry, or even frozen terrain. They feature a fast, scaly central tread design, specifically for the heat of competition. Continental also make the Speed King CX race sport. With the legendary black chili compound, Continental has mastered the balance of grip and rolling resistance in cycling. So, as always, for more information, check out the Continental dash tires.com uh, website you can find that on the uh, tinter web if you tap that one in great website very good nearly as good as cyclingtips.com <laughs> shoddy how is it that we're 10 months into this and you're still saying continental instead of continental i'm trying to bully the um the company <laughs> into ch- changing how to pronounce it i don't know if it's going well we've not heard from them <laughs> Thank you, Shadi, and thank you, Continental, for sponsoring today's episode. Now, let's get into... Should we start with the Tour de France? It feels a bit weird to be talking about the Tour de France this far out. Uh, It's in July. It's currently October. we got a ways to go, but last week was the the pomp and circumstance-filled route announcement for... Both the Tour de France Homme, which is the men's Tour de France, and the Tour de France Femme, the women's Tour de France. Let's start with the first Tour de France Femme in what? Uh, When was the last one? In the 80s sometime? The last women's Tour de France? Yeah, so they announced the first Tour de France Femme uh, in, I guess, the the, the mid-2000s, the later, whatever we're in, the 2020s. Um... 
And in general, the route was really well received. It's eight stages with a variety of different terrains. There's some sprint stages. There's some climbing stages. Uh, there's some dirt, which was actually potentially the only part of the route that was not as well received. Um, so the final stage, the eighth stage ends on the super planche de Belfi, which has been used in women's races previously. I, I think Evelyn Stevens won a race that ended up the top of that maybe, um, a while back, but yeah, in general, a pretty, pretty, uh, well-rounded tour de France for the women. The variety of terrain meant that both sprinters and climbers are excited about the race. Um, I think there was a little bit of a reaction from people that were upset. There's not any massive mountain climbs, but for the most part, I mean, it's, it's a good course. It's going to lead to a lot of exciting racing. It's the women that make the racing anyway. So we're going to see a bunch of different winners on the stages, I think. And, um, it's the whole thing is kind of staying to the, northeast portion with the first stage being on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Um, yeah. So it, it looks easier than, for example, Girosa, Girodonna. Uh, fewer big major mountain stages. But this, I mean, Super Plush de Belfi is... It's not. That's not a small climb. That's a, that's a pretty serious... I mean, that's a climb that's seen... Wow, it's been it's been used really often in the men's tour for like the last ten or fifteen years, and we've seen really big time gaps on that particular climb. And in particular, if you do the super version, if you do the sort of extra up the top, I, I think that that's going to be. I mean, it's for sure, it's going to be decisive. That's that is going to be the day that 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 the race is decided. Yeah, definitely. But I think the stages leading up to it. I mean, specifically stage four, which has some, um, Paris-Roubaix or Paris-Roubaix, some <laughs> Strada Bianchi like dirt in it is going to be another decisive stage. I mean, that's kind of a, who has the best luck kind of stage, but there's, there's other stages within the race that are undulating terrain that the women tend to race super aggressively. So, the age old saying of you can't win the race there, but you can lose it there is, is true of at least three or four of the stages for the women's tour de France femme of X Swift. Of X Swift. We have to include the of X Swift. I don't think we do. Yeah, we do. No. I'm going to. On first usage. Will that be our style guide? Perhaps on first usage include the of X Swift. Uh, I mean, it's, it's good that Swift step up and, and, I don't know what that contract looks like, but I'm assuming they dumped a fair amount of cash into this thing, uh, which I would assume helped get ASO across the line. With yeah, doing it. Well, I mean, they've they've sponsored the race for I think four years. Like they've signed a pretty massive uh, contract with them lengthwise, and I think that that is definitely helping with some live coverage now. A lot of the controversy from the announcement of the route was also the announcement that there would only be two hours of live coverage for each stage. So they're not going to show the stages start to finish, um, which is a little bit of a bummer. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you have to commend Zwift for for 
putting their money behind a real life in-person race and a race that is going to completely change the landscape of women's cycling in the future. If, I mean, if we're right of how, uh, guessing how big this race is going to be with the name of the Tour de France in the title. Do we like the fact that it's set the week after and doesn't overlap? I mean, I would say yes, because the Tour de France tends to monopolize all of the, uh, so all everything, everything cycling is just completely consumed with the Tour de France. So I would say having the women's race overlap is not a good thing. Having it the week after, I'm also not a huge fan of. Definitely better than overlapping, though. I would have maybe said, you know, a week before as a prelude to the Tour de France, get people really excited when people are like the most excited for the Tour de France to start. You know, by the end of the Tour de France, I mean, I know I'm a little bit cracked on bike racing, but I definitely think it shouldn't overlap. There's there is way too much Tour de France coverage. They would just completely eclipse the women's race. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I mean. We've talked quite a lot in the past about sort of the, the, the logistics for media. And this, I agree that before the race would be great, but I think right after is sort of second best there from our perspective, right? Because we're going to have, we'll have reporters on the ground already. We can just leave them there. You know, we can basically split this. Now it's four weeks instead of three weeks. We basically split this four weeks up into maybe two different teams. I think that it means that a lot of, a lot of uh, other outlets will make the decision to make the investment to put people on the ground at this race, which means that we'll have better coverage, right? Not just us, but ev- like sort of fans will get better coverage because more media outlets will have more people there. I feel it'll help you come down off off the tour. It won't be like that sugar rush, that like being cut off the cold turkey deal that we normally have after the Tour de France. Instead, we'll be able to ease out of it. Yeah, and that's kind of what the most of the women who reacted on social media were really, really excited for this opportunity to race, they were excited about the course. And a lot of them talked about how they're excited to make history racing this race and racing it with the ties to the men's tour de France. Because even back when there was a women's tour de France, it was still loosely tied to the men's tour de France. This is like very much this race from what we can tell at this point, very much has the backing of the men's tour de France. And hopefully that means the, the hype that comes along with it from like the tour de France themselves. Cause I mean, it's really in their hands, whether or not this race succeeds, the women are going to race are going to race amazing, uh, eight amazing stages. Every single stage is going to be exciting to watch. That's just how they race. So it's kind of, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, but I am glad that there's no, actually, actually, I am glad there's no mountainous stages, massive mountain stages in the first, uh, women's tour de France femme of ex because it means that, I mean, those stages are usually, you know, the most boring stages, I'm sorry, but the most exciting stages are always kind of the, uh, shorter punchier climbs or climbs back to back to back or something along those lines and the longer the really really long climbs that end at the top of a really high mountain you know the peloton usually kind of waits plays it safe before they get to the bottom and then like it's a slow motion race to the top and i think i think this the race is set up to be an iconic event and yeah we just have to see what happens they may be waiting for 
I don't even looking to retire to put in a time trial and a huge mountain climbing stage. Because if they put them in now, well, with Anna van der Breggen gone and only Annemiek van Voyten left now, I feel like it, the race would kind of be a foregone conclusion, assuming she didn't crash. So this way, things are kept a lot more interesting than uh, they might have otherwise been. Just going back to what you say about uh, them having the, the ASO behind them, I'd be, I'm wondering what sort of infrastructure they're going to use, whether they're going to carry over stuff like the podium and stuff. Because at the um, women's Roubaix, they didn't exactly use the same infrastructure that they used at the men's race. It was like the start area was a little bit of a washout at the women's Roubaix. So I, I do hope that they use, yeah, everything that they've got on hand for the men's race, for the women's race, to make it, yeah, a, a spectacle for the people that are not just watching it on TV, but for the people that are roadside as well. Going to the starts and the finishes, we will see though. I mean, I think if you look at it at this point, it's it's actually kind of hard to tell. The the two final stages are both the the most mountainous of stages. Um, the penultimate stage has, I think, three climbs that are not insignificant in length, back to back to back, and then a downhill finish. So that means that the the final up the super planche de Belfi possibly will not. F- be completely Van Vluten um, because she's she's known for not being well unless she gets to the top of the final climb like a um, couple minutes ahead of everyone she can descend you know the same speed as everyone um, but there's definitely really ballsy descenders out there who could take advantage of that second to last stage like Kashini Wadoma for example Anna Henderson so I think I can't I can't uh, predict who's gonna win. I'm not gonna do that. I don't even know who's racing. Don't put that. No, don't put that on me. <laughs> Sorry. I, I mean, I, you know, I gotta I gotta chuck that one out there, right? No, you a, don't. I do. I do. I do. Yeah, I'm, con- I'm contractually obligated. All right. I'm I'm super excited about this. Uh, yeah. I I think that we saw with the Roubaix weekend sort of. I don't want to rehash this sort of debate that we've had a couple different times about whether women's cycling is better off doing sort of its own, creating its own things or sort of piggybacking off of things that already work on the men's side. Like philosophically, I like the idea of the former, but the latter is basically what we saw at Roubaix and it worked and it worked really well and it was really cool. Right. And so I think that made me a little bit more excited about a, a women's tour de France specifically versus like trying to build, you know, whether the Girosa or something into into what, you know, would be the equivalent. So I think it's going to be awesome. I can't wait. So let's talk Tour de France home, home, the men's tour. We, we, Dane and I had this discussion. Do we, do we start putting men's Tour de France uh, in front of, you know, every time we write a headline or something like that? I don't. I think maybe. we need to, don't we? Because otherwise, if you just call it the Tour de France, then that sort of implies that the default Tour de France is the men's, which that's, I guess is not really the case now that we have a women's one. Well, that's the thing, right? Is is like, you know, if you ASO still calls the men's tour just the Tour de France. But who cares do, what the but, AS, do, but, but the ASO does all sorts of stupid things. Like if you look I, at... I know. Like... What I'm saying, like, if, do we just add home, home on our own? Like, we could. I think we should. I, probably I think should. I think we should. Like, if you look at other major sports that have, you know, equal men's and women's 
categories, like, you know, Wimbledon, for example. It's like the men's final and the women's final. It's not just the Wimbledon finals. Or, so the other option is you just, we just call them all the Tour de France, and it's pretty obvious which one we're talking about based on the riders that we discuss within the story, right? Or that are within the headline. But anyway, this is a style, this is a style guide question for us to figure out. Oh, Tour de France <laughs> sans Zwift. Seen you're not sponsored by him. <laughs> I kind of like the idea of just calling them both the Tour de France. And frankly, if you can't figure out we're talking about the women's one, if Annemiek van Vluten is in the headline, then that's 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 on you, reader. Sorry. Let's talk about Wait, the men's... Wait, I'm just going to say, as, you know, the woman here, I don't see any problem calling the Tour de France the Tour de France and the Tour de France femme the Tour de France femme. <laughs> And this is a ridiculous debate. <laughs> <laughs> but one we will probably have at least six more times, Abby. I apologize. I mean, you know, like I said, it's just style guide for us. We need to figure out what we're going to write in the headlines and have a, have a rule around it. But let's talk about the men's Tour de France. Dane, we also got the route announcement for the men's tour. It's, it's interesting. Uh, it's got some cobblestones again. For the first time since, when was the last? Was it 2018 we got cobblestones last time, I believe? Uh, it's got most of the sort of big iconic climbs. It's got Alpe d'Huez and Glibier and things like that. It's a pretty balanced route. It's got, you know, some pretty decent time trial kilometers. What do you think of it? Yeah, I, balance is a good way to describe it in in 2021, at least. I feel like I've said this like four times on the podcast now when talking about other Grand Tours, but in in the 2020s, this is what pa passes for a balanced Grand Tour. I don't I don't think Miguel Indurain would have thought this was a balanced Grand Tour, but 53 kilometers of time trialing—that's a lot nowadays, uh, and that's what this race has. It's gonna it's gonna have a, an opening short TT uh, to kind of kick things off, 13k, and then in the penultimate stage is a 40 kilometer TT. And yeah, that's, that's a lot of time trialing. Uh, if, if you're looking at previous tours in, in recent memory and in between, yeah, it's a pretty interesting course. Uh, there are a number of stages early on that it, that seems have been thrown in here to present opportunities for chaos and drama. Uh, because I think if you're the ASO and you're trying to de design a route that will be interesting in the age of Pogacar and Roglic, it's kind of similar to designing a route that will be interesting in the age of Chris Froome, where what do you do when two riders are better climbers and time trialists than everybody else? It's kind of hard to plan a route uh, to, to make things you know not automatically in their favor when whether you have high climbs or TTs, that favors them. So what do you do? Well, you put in wind and cobbles, and, and they've done that. My, my issue with this is what happened this year, which is that you stand a pretty good chance of losing one of those two, and then it becomes a one-man race. There is that, and there will be certainly opportunities for these guys to get dropped in the crosswinds, to crash on the cobbles. So the, the opening stages of the race, uh, the race is, of course, going to start in Denmark. Uh, and after that opening TT in Copenhagen, they are going to, let's see, on stage two, they go over an 18-kilometer bridge. So there's that. That's going to have the uh, the bridge is on the North Sea or in and around the North Sea area. So there's going to be a serious possibility for crosswinds there. Uh, and then they head into northern France uh, where they will be. Yeah, more more racing along the uh, 
along the water and more more opportunities for wind. Stage five, they're going to have cobblestones. Uh, it's not going to be the the you know the the, the actual hardest Roubaix sectors, but it's in that area. the The stage goes from Wallers to Arenberg, uh, and it's going to have some cobbles that. Uh, yeah, anytime there's cobbles in the Tour de France, it's 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 an opportunity for the guys to gain time on each other or to crash and have their race entirely ruined. Which sectors are they? It's a number of sectors that are not uh, that are not used that haven't been used in Roubaix or the Tour. Um, they're they're in that area, but they're not using uh, they're, they're not using the Arenberg Trench anything like that. There are a lot of other roads around there that are exactly the same thing, but they just don't get used in Roubaix. Uh, right. I have discovered that a couple different times riding around there, where you just you just follow some GPS route, and all of a sudden you find yourself on a cobble sector that is not only not in the race, but like hasn't been swept or driven on or anything in like four years. <laughs> You're basically mountain biking. So I wonder which. Yeah, I'll have to go take a closer look at the map and see if I spot any 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 that I recognize. But in that area, they're going to be nasty, right? Like the 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 easiest ones are still far worse than anything you're going to find in Belgium. So I think that yeah, that could be decisive, and that that does kind of come back to to that that question of do you really do you really want that to decide the Tour de France? I don't know. Like, I kind of like it for the spectacle. I love it for the spectacle. But I think that this year's tour showed us sort of what can happen if you do lose one of the key favorites quite early on. I think the ideal scenario for the ASO would be that Julian Alaphilippe attacks and takes time rather than somebody crashing on the cobblestones. Unfortunately, the latter is like just as likely to happen, I feel like. But, you know, there is an outcome that's not just crashes and, and, and it's somebody actually taking advantage uh, in 2014, exactly. You can get both. You can get people crashing and Vincenzo Nibali taking advantage. Uh, and yeah, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. After that first several stages, things calm down a little bit, get a little more traditional. Uh, the, the men's race heads up La Planche de Belfi uh, on stage seven. And then in the second week, there are some serious uh, alpine climbs, particularly on stage 12 in which the Peloton will go over the Galibier, the Col de la Croix de Fer, and the Alpe d'Huez, which I think is something that they've done before. In 1986, I believe it is the Le Monde-Eno battle uh, stage, and we're going to get that again uh, in the middle of the Tour de France next year, which is going to be really exciting. And then on to the Pyrenees, into the final week with some more hard climbs, more altitude, more of the traditional tough stuff that we see in the final uh, week of the tour, plenty of you know well-known climbs before that final time trial. So things get a little more traditional after that first five, six stages. Uh, and it will be, yeah, like we said, a, a balanced route, quote unquote, where time trialists will have will, will be happy to see some opportunities to, to gain time on Egan Bernal uh, if he were to race. But yeah, I think it's going to be a pretty cool tour. I'm, I'm happy that they have some of these interesting unique challenges in the first week and i'm just hoping that they're not dis- defined by crashes because if they're defined by people taking advantage of wind or or attacking then that could be very cool and it could make things a lot more interesting than than just seeing which of pogaccio or roglic is better in july maybe tom Dumoulin will come back could be you never know maybe egan bernal will will use his mountain biking skills and show everybody that He's he's more than just a climber. 
I want to know what double act are we going to see on the Brias on Alp Duez stage, do a, a Hino Limond? Because if you go back and watch that stage, um, yeah, there's some, they're not mates going up the road together at all. Uh, so, yeah, closer to the time I'd have to work out who, who's not mates, but who's on the same team and who's, yeah, who's going to nip up the road together. Uh, each other's legs. Think go Roglic or, or Kuss Roglic? <laughs> Could be a Kuss Roglic. I mean, that would yeah. you, you, you pull the American angle into it again, right? Yeah, at some point we should do we should do a um, like a retrospective of that particular day. I think ahead of the tour next year because that was it was it was it was a great day of racing, and it's also just like it it sits in the middle of this really fascinating context. If you've ever read like Slaying the Badger, Richard Moore's book, for example, uh, yeah, it's just it's a great story. We'll, we'll do we'll do a special podcast for that day. Let's let's get the two of them in the room together. I'm sure that'll go down well. That'll be funny. I I flew home actually. I flew home from Belgium with Greg Lamond, um, and Roman Grosjean, actually, the F1 driver was in first class, obviously, so not not back with me. Uh, and I saw Lamond chatting with with Roma. Uh, you're saying you're saying Roman Grosjean Florida. didn't have a didn't have a middle row seat all the way in the back, huh? <laughs> he did not. Uh, I mean, until recently, he was probably on a private plane. Uh, so he now he's at, he's he's with us in the commercial space. <laughs> yeah, him and Greg just hanging out at uh, baggage claim, chatting about I don't know what. I was too far away to hear, but uh, thought that was interesting and funny. Talking to Greg, he will be very upset because this is the first year that well, probably in about since the tour started. That we don't even visit Poe, which is where I know his favorite uh, French Mexican restaurant is. <laughs> That's what I should have asked him. I was, yeah, I went and said hi uh, while we were waiting for our bags, and I, I should have asked him whether that story is true or not. We, we need to confirm at some point whether that Mexican place in Poe is actually his favorite Mexican place in Poe. Well, when we get Inno and him in the room together to chat about that stage, we'll ask him about that as well. <laughs> Perfect. Anything else in the tour? It's a long way away. I imagine we'll talk about it again. There does seem a lot of upset people on the internet whinging that there's no uh, West Coast visits this year. But we get that moan every year, no matter what way the tour goes round. Yeah, that, but that could be a matter of the ASO sort of making up for the fact that they've been to Brittany over and over and over again in recent years, which I love. I love that they've spent so much time in Brittany and... Uh, you know, the Loire Valley, but it's, yeah, it, it is uh, kind of a bummer, I guess, that they're skipping it this year. They've yeah. gotten used to it. you got to mix it up. got to mix it up. Should we talk about this USA Crit stuff? Let's do it. I have to be, we have to be quite careful here because we're still very much in the middle of reporting this stuff. And it, some of you have probably seen some of the things online. Uh, we posted a, a brief story over the weekend uh, one of the few things that we could actually fully confirm, uh, which was that Legion and actually, well, Evolo didn't really do many USA crits last year, but Legion specifically said they were going to pull out of the USA crits uh, series. Scott Morris, who was the managing director of USA crits until he was uh, dismissed over the weekend or late last week, has a safe sport ban at the moment. The ban was instituted on September 14th of this year. Uh, we've reached out to, to both USA Cycling and to Safe Sport to find out what that ban is for, what that suspension is for, and neither will tell us. 
uh, we have dug around and, and found out that there were some other uh, reports, say sport reports, made against him in the last sort of half decade or so, but those do not appear to be directly related. We also know that Scott Morris was indicted for 45 counts of uh, exploiting minors, in other words, child pornography found on two different laptops in 2007 and 2008. Now those charges were eventually dropped. He was he was uh, he was found guilty or had a plea deal, I should say. Uh, for stealing a computer. That's all that he was eventually hit with was, was computer theft. SafeSport, I should say, is basically, it's a nonprofit organization that was that was started to help police amateur sport. Uh, so organizations like USA Cycling or other, you know, any sort of sporting organization, they partner with them much like they partner with USADA or partner, partner with WADA to help police their own members. Uh, and so if you have a ban from state sport, you can't go to a bike race, for example. Um, and so his was implemented just ahead of Winston-Salem. The USA Crits folks, sounds like they were, uh, they were informed just ahead of Winston-Salem, which is a crit here in the United States. Um, and I don't believe he went to that. But we have very little additional information. Uh, that's basically, that's, that's, the, that's what we can confirm thus far. I've had a lot of conversations over the last 72 hours that point in a million different directions, and we're currently trying to figure out exactly uh, exactly what's going on, exactly what happened, exactly why Scott Morris was suspended, uh, and then what teams are going to do about it. So today we're expecting a statement from most of the D1 USA Crits teams, which are basically, they, they sort of buy into this series. We don't know exactly what that statement will say. But we are expecting that in the next six to eight hours. So by the time you hear this podcast, it should be up on cyclingtips.com. Nice story on that. The other kind of interesting angle here is that, like I said, Legion was was one of the first to basically say that we're out. Um, Legion is also hosting their own race, which is not a USA Crits race, uh, in about, I think actually it's this week. And... They, uh, they, they actually kind of stand to benefit a little bit from the collapse of USA Crits, I would say. They, they were never particularly happy with that, with that series. And they are, like I said, hosting their own, their own race. So that's where we are at this point in time. I, I'm not super comfortable saying a whole lot more because, again, we're, we're trying to confirm things and we're talking about you know, people's livelihoods here. Uh, not just Scott Morris, but like the rest of the folks that work at USA Crits, lots of people who work uh, or race in teams that, that that utilize this series. I've heard from a couple different teams that their sponsors are concerned that if USA Crits disappears, they may lose those sponsorships. Those teams may lose those sponsorships. So this could have a cascading effect down through essentially the American Criterium Peloton, professional Peloton. Uh, that could have a pretty dramatic and negative impact on a lot of different people. So it, again, I, I want to kind of leave it there. Keep an eye on cyclingtips.com for additional reporting on this. I'm working with um, Rebecca Rezzo over at VeloNews, uh, our sister publication these days, and we're, we're digging on this as best we can. Again, if you, if, you, if you frequent the internet, you probably have seen a lot of other things floating around. Uh, there's a fair amount of, of uh, sort of 
individual reporting happening, amateur reporting <laughs> happening. Um, some of it quite good, some of it not as good. Uh, my my request to everybody out there would be basically just hold tight a little bit uh, and and as we try to figure out exactly what's going on here and, and bring you you know the fact checked version of this because it is it's quite complicated. We got a. a before we wrap up a sort of news segment today, Dane, we've got a couple other kind of brief updates uh, on teams and World Tour teams uh, specifically. What's going on? We've got Kubeka stuff. We've got Manuela Fundacion is back in the headlines for the first time in a while. What's going on? Yeah, mostly negative news and then one kind of interesting news piece. So starting with Kubeka, the, the Kubeka Next Hash team, said last week that they did not apply for a World Tour license for next year yet. Uh, they missed a deadline, which wasn't really a deadline, because you can still apply. So, uh, I don't know, dead is a kind of a, a, it's a strong word, a strong part of that word, which isn't really real, I guess. So, they, they however, they've had some serious financial issues, and uh, Ian Trillar has done some really good reporting on this for us over at CyclingTips.com, but... Basically, the, the team is in dire straits, and I think they're looking for a new sponsor uh, or at least some kind of sponsorship assistance for next year. Uh, and they have yet to apply for World Tour licenses. They'd already told riders they could look for spots in other teams. So things are, yeah, at this point, mid-October, it's it's not a great sign for the team. And uh, ho hopefully they'll be able to sort this out. But it's, yeah, not good. Uh, but but best of luck to them trying to find some, some way to keep afloat. I've spoke with... Somebody that I know who works for one of the uh, one of the smaller sponsors of the team, and he's saying the staff seem quite hopeful. The riders, on the other hand, maybe not so much. But they are they are really talking to quite a few different sponsors by the sound of things. Whether any of them do come come through, well, we'll see. Hopefully, something does. Doug Ryder is kind of a survivor <laughs> in this space. He just always manages to dig something up. Um, maybe a little too accepting of some of some lifelines that he maybe shouldn't be. I, I think is is maybe safe to say after this next hash debacle, which again, if you followed Ian's reporting on that, it's next hash isn't really a thing, uh, and it and it doesn't sound like any of that money ever actually showed up, and that probably should have showed up in some due diligence that that maybe never happened. Uh, but nonetheless, Doug has proven time and time again that he is capable of finding more cash, and so. You know, for the sake of all the people that work at that team and all the people that ride for that team, I think everybody hopes that he is able to do so again. Uh, my my optimism is measured on that front, I would say. Uh, moving on to two different pro teams, not great news. Uh, the Delco team has folded, uh, which is it's it's I, I would say it's kind of been a long time coming. There there's been uh, suggestions that things weren't great over there, um, but yeah, that's a that's a team with a long history that has uh, yeah shuttered. And that's left a number of riders. Uh, it's a you know it's a big team in the French scene, uh, second division, and superstars like Tom Scoinch rode for that organization earlier in their careers. Uh, yeah, so they're folding, which is which is a shame. Uh, Vini Zabu, Italian pro team, another second division team, also apparently in dire straits uh, with sponsorship issues and could drop down from the current level they're at, that which is the second division to continental or maybe lower. Uh, yeah, so things are things are rough out there for teams right now. Uh, Manuela Fundacion 
in the news is different. That's not so much a, a, a huge bummer. It's more of like, yeah, this is interesting. Uh, the Spanish newspaper Marca got their hands on the, well, at least what is purported to be the heads of terms agreement that the team signed last year in its attempt to, or sorry, that the organization signed last year in its attempt to acquire the Mitchelton Scott team. Uh, so if you are looking for details on how much Manuela Fundacion was looking to pay to acquire the team, then this is an article you should check out uh, because it's got the actual, there's there's like a literal PDF. You can read the Heads of Terms Agreement and you can read that the folks over at Manuela Fundacion, which was run by a businessman named Francisco Huertas, uh, were all set to pay 6.98 million euros uh, to acquire the team, which is actually a pretty small sum for a bike racing team, um, which is very interesting. Uh, yeah, so they had signed this agreement and... They were all set to, yeah, the, the agreement would have seen them take over the actual full ownership of the team. Uh, but as we all know, Jerry Ryan decided to uh, nix the deal, and that never happened. And the team became Bike Exchange and not Manuela Fundacion. And their really cool pink kit, pink and dark bluish kit, never, never came to fruition, which is a, I don't know, I like that kit. Anyway, interesting Interesting story, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm kind of curious why it came out. This, you know, it's it's been a year and several months since all of this, and they weren't talking much at first. The the folks over at Manuela Fundacion, other than registering their frustration, they didn't say much at first. But now, yeah, all this time later, they've apparently they've given the the document that they signed to the to the press. And then in other Spanish cycling news, uh, the Movistar team. First of all, Miguel Angel Lopez is officially joining Astana after his less than one year stint at Movistar. Uh, and second of all, uh, Jose Luis Arrieta is apparently considering legal action after parting ways with the team. Uh, and that's not a good look for Movistar. Uh, he has been quite prominently featured in El Dia Menos Pensado, the least expected day. On Netflix, so if you've watched that show, then yeah, one of the one of the key players in the car, one of the key DSs, is, is no longer with the team, and apparently there is some acrimony there because uh, he is apparently considering suing them. So we don't really know what that's all about, but hey, it's it's interesting. So thanks to Spanish Cycling for giving us interesting stories to write about in October uh, when all the racing is done. Yeah, and hopefully things get better for Jose Luis Arrieta and for Movistar. I uh, don't like to see people suing each other, but yeah. Hey, cyclocross is happening. It is. World Cup racing happened this past week. I could talk about it for 30 seconds if we want. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Let's do Nerd Nugget. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. All sorts Nerd of interesting alert. little news bits there. Thank you, Dane. Let's move on to our Nerd Nugget for today. James, what are we talking about? Well, in light of a couple of recent things, one being the Tarmac SL7 bike recall that was related to the steerer tube, uh, and then the review that we just published recently on the BMC Road Machine 012, uh, high-end endurance road bike, um, I was kind of curious because with both of those bikes and higher-end bikes in general, and even a lot of mid-range bikes these days, have... Uh, a lot of features that have traditionally been sort of reserved for the ultra top end flagship stuff, I guess specifically, you know, integrated front ends and, you know, all the hidden cable routing and stuff like that. And while it does seem to be pretty popular with 
regular buyers in terms of you know how people feel like it looks. Uh, it kind of got me thinking a lot, especially based on a lot of the conversations that were going on in our Velo Club Slack channel. Um, got me wondering what listeners of the Slacking Tips podcast, uh, what sort of features they actually want and look for in bikes that they're either riding now or bikes that they are interested in buying. Um, because I know, for example, like you, if, if you look at like car enthusiasts, for example, um, car enthusiasts, very, very disproportionately, uh, they, uh, they, ha they have a much higher preference for manual transmissions than the general buying public, for example. And it just makes me wonder if the cycling enthusiast market is fairly similar in that sense, in that, in that we may prefer things that the general mainstream market does not necessarily prefer to the point where it makes it harder for us to find those things when we're looking for bikes. So it, again, it just got me wondering, and this is really not so much of a, like a news thing or like a, like a big, huge topic of discussion that we're going to have on the podcast itself, but I just kind of want to put out that question to our listeners. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping you can comment on the written article that is on cyclingtips.com to go along with this podcast. I just want to I, I just want to hear from you what sort of bar, uh, what sort of bikes you are riding, what sort of bikes you are looking to buy, and what sort of features you are actually looking for. What's important to you, and what are sort of deal breakers for you now? Do, do you mean like like you know electronic versus mechanical, disc brakes versus rim brakes, like the yes. sort of usual all, kind of all that topics stuff. here? Yeah, mm. uh, but but more specifically. We are seeing a lot of features that are become almost sort of standard with higher end bikes. Again, like the fully internal cable routing, disc brakes, stuff like that. Um, I guess I'm more specifically curious about features that have become seemingly mainstream and normal and almost standard that you actually don't want. Um, aero, aero shaping, stuff like that. Yeah, recently we saw this sort of phenomenon, like, but like with that specialized Athos, for example. That's kind of a you, you could regard that as kind of a throwback bike in the way that it's aero nothing, like doesn't have a fully integrated front end, and you know, there's like cables flapping around on the front, whatever. And on on paper, it is a throwback. It's kind of a step backwards in a lot of ways as far as what a lot of companies have been talking about. But it also has been really successful because it's also what a lot of people actually want and care about in that, you know, we're talking about road feel and lightweight and ease of service and non-proprietary parts, that sort of thing. So... Again, I am just curious what people actually want, what they don't want. Um, yeah, I just kind of kind of want to see what what people are looking at these days. Yeah, we always want to hear from you. Uh, you know, it's uh, one of my we'll call it an early New Year's resolution. Well, uh, it's only October, but it's what I want to do next year. You know, we hear from listeners all the time. We you tweet at us, you email us, you hit us on the Vela Club Slack. Uh, I should say, by the way, you know, you should uh, feel free to tweet at us, at Kaylee Fretz, at Angry Asian, or send us uh, an email, maybe email James, tech, at cyclingtips.com. I prefer all the emails to go to Kaylee. <laughs> or editor at cyclingtips.com, whatever you want to do. Or, you know, if you're a Velo Club member, which we hope you are, jump over to the Velo Club Slack you can direct message us on there or drop a question into like the tech channel and tag us. Like I said, one of my, one of my resolutions here is to, is to pull your questions and your comments into the podcast more often, because a lot of times things that people say to us, they do end up in the podcast. We don't necessarily directly call them out as having come from the listeners and we need to be better about that. We need to, you know, give credit where credit is due here. Oh, uh, 
I want to do that going into next year and be answering, you know, email questions and tweet, tweet questions and things like that on each episode. With that, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. See you. Bye.